We are uh, back in Romans 9 today. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, we see Paul pivoting to a discussion of Israel and their, uh, their role in things that, uh, you know, he started out saying that he's super heartbroken over uh, his people and their rejection of the Messiah. Not all of them rejected the Messiah. In fact, in the first century, most Christians were Jewish. Um, but as a whole, the nation pretty much rejected him as Messiah. And so uh, this little sect of Christianity became kind of outcasts uh, in the Jewish community. And, um, and he's heartbroken over this because um, he wants his, his countrymen to follow Jesus. And, and they sh- they're the ones who were most primed for the Messiah. They should be the ones who are responding to the Messiah. But obviously, most of them did not. Um, and which brings up some hard questions. Remember, when we started with Romans, we talked about that, that the church in Rome was really a mixed audience of, of, of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And I think this section primarily is addressing uh, Jewish questions that would have come up uh, about the role of, of Israel. Like, why, you know, how, what do we do with Israel now? Weren't they his chosen people? Is God now rejecting them? Is God kind of maybe going back on his word concerning them? And we saw last week that that is not true, that that, that kind of mentality, that kind of understanding is not, um, was not accurate because not all Israel was ever truly Israel. Not all Israel was ever truly the children of God, that it was always a smaller group within the larger group that were truly the children of God, were those whose hearts were his. And that, um, and that physical descent did not mean what the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, thought it meant, which is that I'm good because I, I look, my, my grandpa was a Yahweh follower, my dad was a Yahweh follower, my Great, 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 great. They would run their line all the way back to the, to the patriarchs. I mean, they just knew they all were God followers. They were all Yahweh followers, and that makes me one. And he said that it's never been about physical descent, right? That was his argument. And so now it answers this question of how can the Gentiles be infused into the people of God? Well, because it was never about physical descent. And so uh, the Gentiles are more than welcome to be a part of the children of God because, and this was the key thing, this is the thing that makes us most comfortable, or most comfortable, most uncomfortable about this passage, is that the choice is God's, right? We saw that last week. It's his choice. If he wants to choose to use the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, he can do that. If he wants to choose to use the Gentiles, he can do that. And he has full right to do that. Now, of course, I balanced Paul's comments with the fact that we have full free choice too, right? But I'm not going to go into that nuance today because we're focused on what Paul's saying in chapter 9, which is that God has, makes independent choices concerning his children, who, who he desires to be his children. And so, of course, after last week, you, we might come away, you might have come away, I know I've come away from that passage going, that's unfair. Right? For God to have independent choice where I'm not involved in this thing and he just simply chooses who he wants to be his children for his purposes. Now, we don't always understand what his purposes are, but for his purposes, he chooses them. That seems unfair. And I don't like that idea. And because um, choosing like that just doesn't seem fair to me. I don't like a God who does that. 
We may have that attitude. Maybe we won't say it, right? Because saying it would be kind of indignant to God, and we don't want to do that. But, but we kind of have that sense that it just seems unfair. And, um, and since God chooses, then the, the natural question becomes, should anybody be held accountable? Because if he's making the choice, how can people be held accountable for their, their choices? Paul's going to address those issues today. He's going to address those questions. Now, I will say this. I don't know if we, we're going to like the way he addresses them. I don't know if we're going to like his conclusions. But like we talked about last week, my goal is not to theologize this stuff. My, my goal is not to make, this, make it comfortable for you and make it fit for you, because I'm uncomfortable with most of it. My job, my commitment is always just to lay out what's here. And so we may not love Paul's response to these questions, uh, but he does respond to them. And it's us that need to adjust our thinking to his thinking, as usual. So let me pray for us as we get in. Lord, um, just pray that, uh, again, you just get me out of the way with this passage. This is just kind of a continuation of the discomfort uh, we had last week, the discomfort we felt last week, the discomfort I feel always coming to the, this passage. Um, help me just to get out of the way and my discomfort to get out of the way so that your word can, can be clear and clearly understood and that it would transform our thinking and lives, that we wouldn't go, oh, this is such a sticky idea, I don't know that I understand it fully, that we just kind of stick it in the, in the back of our mind and kind of ignore it. Um, that's not what we're called to. Help us to be transformed by your word. Help us to be transformed by these thoughts. Help our perspective to align with your perspective on things. Pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? This is going to, to that question that is, I think, in most of our hearts, which is how can you choose one over another? How can you choose one kid over another kid? How can you choose Isaac over Ishmael? Remember, he talked about that. How can you choose Jacob over Esau? How can, how, how can you do that? That does not seem fair to me. How can you choose to punish Pharaoh and Egypt when you're the one who hardened his heart? That seems unfair to me. All the consequences that he and his nation had to face seems unfair when you're the one at work hardening his heart. Right? Seems like a logical question to go to. And how can you hold people responsible for, for their decisions? How can you hold Pharaoh responsible for his decisions when you're the one that's hardening? And the problem is, and he's going to get into this, is that we think we have a say. We think our thoughts on fairness, our thoughts on justice, our thoughts on right and wrong are important. That we can somehow stand in judgment of God and his choices because maybe it doesn't line up with our sensibilities. One of us is wrong, right? One of us is wrong in this equation. And I think we know which one's wrong, right? Our problem is our problem. It's not his problem. And our perspective needs to conform to his perspective, not the other way around. Because we, remember, we're the finite, he's the 
infinite, right? We're the limited, he's the limitless. We're the created, and he's the creator, which is going to be his argument here. Look at this. He says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, oh, sorry, i got to read 20, which is a very important statement to read here. On the contrary, okay, i gotta, I got to read the whole thing now. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? There's the question. There's our questioning, right? Here's his response. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Does that ring for anybody? Every time I read that, I think Job, right? Every time I read that, I'm like, this is, was God's response to Job. God didn't answer Job's questions. He just said, your perspective is all wrong, dude. Like, who are you to question me, right? And that's a little uncomfortable looking at it in Job, but now he's turning the guns on us. Who are you, Nate? Oh, man, oh, human, oh, limited one, who answers back to God. See, when I have a problem with this, my problem is my problem. My problem is my perspective is wrong, is incorrect, and I need a perspective adjustment. So he's trying to give it to us here. This is what he says. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? I don't know if anybody played with these guys when you were a kid, uh, or army men. Loved these things. Uh, didn't have a lot of money when, when in my family when I was a kid, and these things were super cheap, and they were super fun. And you could do all sorts of stuff with it, right? And these are, there's nothing special about these things. They're just molded plastic, right? They just pour a little bit of plastic into a mold, and it comes out. That's why they're so cheap. Um, but they were super fun in my younger days. Um, can you imagine... My little sniper guy here saying, oh, I would rather be a bazooka guy. I don't like that the molder made me a sniper guy. I just, with my sniper gun, I can only go, I probably have to like bolt action or something. Like this is like, this guy, bazooka guy goes, and everything blows up, right? I want to be bazooka guy. I don't want to be sniper guy. We laugh because that is ridiculous, right? Like, you, you're a molded piece of plastic, okay? You don't, say to the, you don't question the molder. If the molder wants to make you a sniper guy, that's what you are, right? If, if the molder wants to make this guy a bazooka guy, that's, that's what you are, right? Or, here's another example. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. So pottery in the first century, super prevalent, right? Everybody had tons of pottery in their house for all sorts of thing. it was, it, it, things. It was the Tupperware of the first century, okay? It, it, just, it just worked for so many different uses, okay? Um, now, when you think about pottery, and when they were thinking about pottery, you look at pottery and the questions ask, who decides what the pot is going to look like? The potter, Right? The potter decided, I'm going to make this one a little bit taller and a little bit skinnier at the top, and I'm going to make this one a little bit wider, and I'm going to make this one really wide at the bottom and kind of have a, a little tiny top. At, like, the, the potter is the one who shaped it and made it however the potter wanted to make it. It's up to the potter. 
There's all sorts of different ways you can make pottery. I think these ones that have little, like, slits in them there, those things are cool. I don't even know how a potter would do that because I'm not a potter, but that's pretty cool, right? And there's a bunch of different ways that you can make pottery and for a bunch of different uses, right? Like, this one has a lid on it. Some of them have, like, a lid with a handle. Like, the potter decides what the potter is going to do with the pot, right? And you can make you know, a little tea set, or maybe that's a water set, I don't know, uh, probably not tea, but uh, a little water set, um, you can make it for planting uh, plants. Like, the potter decides, hey, I'm going to make certain things for certain uses, and the point, the whole point is, the potter is the decision maker, right? The potter can do whatever the potter wants with the pottery, and no one in the first century, we don't have a lot of pottery today, no one's going back to the potter and, and going, why did you make it like this? No, the, definitely the pot is not going back to the potter and go, why did you make me like this? I don't want to hold plants. Like, th- that's just ridiculous. And he's trying to do that on purpose, trying to get us to think that is ridiculous to think of it that way. Potter's making something there. It looks kind of like a mushroom. I don't know. Potter gets to do the work. I think pottery is cool. Anybody else? Like, it's one of those things that I was like, I'm never going to learn to do it because it's probably way too hard, but it would be cool to be able to do it. Um, The point is this. His illustration is this. Created things do not get to question the creator. That is not their role. That is not their purpose. That is not why they exist. In fact, they would not exist apart from the creator creating them the way that the creator wanted to create them. That the potter has the right over the clay. Literally, that is the authority over the clay. That that the potter has freedom of choice with the clay, which is really what authority is if you think about it. Anybody who's given authority, that just means they, they, they can make more decisions. They have a broader set of decisions. When you work at Taco Bell and you just started working there, you do what the manager says, and you work when the manager says you're going to work, right? And the manager gets the option of making the schedule and deciding who's going to work where, when, right? Because they have the authority and the freedom to do that. The creator has the, the authority and freedom of decision-making to do what the, the, authority, the, the, the creator wants, and even though there are philosophers out there, don't read philosophy, because those guys, uh, who will say, hey, if you give, if a, created, if a creator creates a being that is volitional, that has will, that has choice, like the creator created them that way, then suddenly the creator loses decision-making ability over the creation. That is ridiculous. Because you would not have your will, you would not have your volition unless the creator gave you your will and your volition. And so it's, it's always derived from the creator, right? A couple weeks ago, I made this. This is a paper crane. Um, when I was a nerd many years ago, it's changed, um, in, in junior high, I loved going into the library and getting origami books out of, out of, out of the, the thing because I had origami. My family, they just, they're just mocking me the whole time. Uh, 
origami books out of the, out of the library, because I had paper and I could make cool things, right? Uh, and I haven't made it in a while, but I, I love the crane, right? The crane is a cool origami thing to make. So I made a little, a little crane here, right? And I, when I made it, I had the decision-making ability concerning the crane, right? Like I went into Melissa's paper stacks that she has, and she has a bunch of different colors, and I decided I want my crane to be in neon green, because that makes sense. Cranes are neon green, right? Uh, but I just decided I wanted to do that. So I decided that. I decided uh, how, what I was going to make. I, I wanted to make a crane. I could have made a, a turtle or a butterfly or, you know, a, a bunch of different stuff. I could have made a horse or a frog or whatever, but I decided to make a crane, because I'm allowed to make what I want. I'm the creator of the thing, Right? And, and I decided, like, I, the wings, I could have made the wings, like, like, up here, shorter wings, but I made longer wings. Or I could have made, like, multiple folds in the wings so that they kind of curved over, which gives it kind of a cool look. But I decided not to do that. I wanted straight wings, and I got straight wings. Now, does anybody have a problem with my creation here? Does anyone have a problem with my decision-making ability to make this the way I wanted to make it? No, it's mine. And if I wanted to unfold this and remake it into something else, would I have the freedom to do that? Sure I could. Why? I created it. I get to decide what to do with it and and, and how to make it. Now, the problem with this in our minds as humans is we go, I am not a molded toy soldier, right? I am not a pot, although there's multiple Bible passages that would say you are a pot, but I am not a pot. I am not a paper crane. I'm a human. Right? So it's different because I'm a human. There's a distinction we like to make, but it's not a distinction he makes. Do we have a creator? Yeah. Did he create every part of who we are? Yes, he did. You have the right to do that. Yes, he did. I think Acts 17 has a, it gives a really nice corrective in our minds on this. This is, this is uh, Paul speaking to a, a bunch of guys who weren't following God. And try, he's trying to clarify their thinking about God. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord, boss over heaven and earth, over everything, he's in charge of it all. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Does he need anything from us? No. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's the giver. He doesn't need anything from us. Everything we have, life, breath, everything we have from him. Every moment of our lives we have from him. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He started the first domino of that man that made all the rest of the dominoes of humanity, right? Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that's like God over history is the bottom line there, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Grope, like, but he is not far from each one of us, right? And he finishes with this statement. I have to remind myself of this statement a lot. For in him we live. In him we move. In him we exist. 
Not only did he create us, did he knit us together in our mother's womb, but every moment of our lives is a, is a creation. He's pumping our lungs for breath. He's pumping our heart for, to move the blood around. He is the one doing it all. He is the one sustaining every moment of our lives. And somehow, we think we have a say in what he's doing with us. Something's broken in here, right? Something's wrong with us. The fall made us think that we were something more than what we are. We're created things. And we have a creator. And it causes us to think in a way that I would call entitlement, which Christina mentioned earlier, right? It's an entitlement mentality. Any of you who have raised kids probably can, can, can um, identify with the fact that our kids, even though they were near perfect, um, they were entitled at times in their life. And I would say in some ways they're maybe still a little entitled. What, this is the principle. The more you give a kid, the more they expect you to give them that thing, right? The more you give them, the more they expect it. I saw it all over the place when we were in San Diego, taught at that school that it was in one of the five richest communities in America. Those kids, many of them were super entitled. Like, some of them had like whole go-kart tracks in the back of their, their house. And they, if one of the go-karts was down for a while, you'd hear them complain, oh, my go-kart's down right now. My dad won't fix it. And like, like, dude, you have a go-kart track in your backyard. Like, come on, right? But that same perspective, I think, happens to us because God is so good and has given us so much, we flip the script and say, God, you do, we deserve this. I should get this. This is my own little, like, take on some of the things going on in, in America. I found as, as I get older that I be, I've become more and more of that grumpy old guy. That I look around and I'm like, oh my gosh. But I, from my grumpy old guy status, I, I feel like we've moved as Americans toward talking about the privilege of being an American to talking about the rights I have as an American and demanding those rights. It's entitlement. It's entitlement. And we do the same thing, I think, with God. God I deserve this. We deserve this. Humanity deserves this. And our perspective needs to change. We don't deserve anything. We're the created. He's the creator. Put your hand out if you want to put it in there is, it is not our place as the created to question his choices as the creator. It is not our place as the created to question his choices as the creator. I know, not a fully satisfying answer, right? We want to know why God chooses the way he chooses. Give me all the details. Help me understand. And he just says, yeah, no. I'll make the decisions. You be the created. And trust in my decisions. He goes on. What if, what if, this is 
not a hypothetical that's not a reality. This is one of those hypotheticals that is a reality. And he's just calling our attention and going, hey, our perspective needs to change. What if this is the way it is and it is the way it is? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if? What if God was completely ready, willing, and able to put his unlimited power on display, to put his perfectly righteous wrath on display by destroying every human soul that has ever lived or ever will live? What if he was willing to do that and ready to do that? And he was. See, we need to shift our perspective from entitlement. Oh, we deserve some, some of this grace and mercy that you've given. No, 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 no. He was ready and willing to wipe everyone out. And here's the key. Because we have this thing and we go, that's not my God. This is your God. He could have easily wiped out everyone like he did at the flood and been completely just and right and within his character to do that. He could have done that. But what if instead he did something amazing? He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Vessels of wrath are like misshapen pots. That doesn't look too functional as a cup, does it? How about these guys? You see that at a pottery barn, you taking that home? Do they even sell pottery at Pottery Barn? I don't know. Um, never been in one. Um, yeah, you want to take one of these home for your use? These are vessels of wrath. Guess who he's comparing the vessels of wrath to? Us. We're these guys. We're the misshapen, ugly pots that have only really one use or one destiny. The trash pile. Right? The junk pile. And I know it makes us uncomfortable. Every time I talk about something like this, there's somebody who's like, but I'm not trash. Only because God has such mercy on us, right? This is where we deserve to be. In the junk pile. That's really who we are, is vessels prepared for wrath. At destroyed. Destruction. That's, that what is all that we were good for, is the junk pile. But what if... This God of ours saw the junk pile, saw the trash heap, and said, you know what? I have a choice to make here. And really, he had one of three choices to make. He could have left the trash heap the trash heap and destroyed all human, humanity, all humankind, every soul. His second choice is he could save some of the pots out of the junkyard, out of the trash. Or he could save all out of the junkyard, out of the trash. But listen to what his purpose is. This is, this is interesting. Because I don't think it... Um, I don't think I can get to that yet. We'll get to his purpose here in a second, because that's not in this, in this part. 
understand he had a purpose. That's the point. He had a purpose in what he was doing and the choice that he made, right? And it's like this. I have this other example. I just kind of skipped these big examples that I come up with. All right, here we go. Here's the junkyard. Imagine you got this junkyard, all a bunch of rusty cars, right? What's, what's the, what purpose do these things serve other than being an eyesore? Anybody, anything? Do you see how rusty those things are? Getting any good parts out of that? But maybe, maybe, maybe you'll find something. But imagine that a restorer walks into this junkyard and says, I want to restore a couple cars. So I'm going to take this car and I'm going to make it this. Nice. Anybody want this? Anybody want this? All right? And he sees this one. He's like, oh, hmm, a truck. Hmm. And he does this to it. Anybody want this? (laughs) You're like every youth kid I ever had. Um, now we want this, right? Now, could someone look at these two cars and go, oh, yeah, those are nice, but what about the rest of the junkyard restorer? Could someone do that? Yes. But that's a little ridiculous because instead we should be looking at this and going, wow, look at what the restorer did, right? Wow. Wow. Look at what he did with that truck. That's the right response. Says this. This is the purpose statement. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I don't understand all the nuances of this, he doesn't share with us the nuances of this, but he does pull back the curtain a little bit and say, God chose the way he chose for his glory. That's why he chose the way he chose. Now, how does that work? How does that somehow create more glory for yourself? See, in my mind, and maybe in your mind, I think the max amount of glory that God could receive would be if every car in the junkyard was transformed, right? If every person on the planet was chosen by him to, before the foundation of the world, right? Like that to me, but I'm limited. He's unlimited. I'm finite. He's infinite. And so instead, our job and what we're called to in this passage, I don't like it any more than you like it, is to be quiet, trust him and his choices. Point in your handout if you want to fill it in. Is God chose to have mercy on some of us, deserving nothing but wrath, to demonstrate his immeasurable greatness. God chose to have mercy on some of us, deserving nothing but wrath, to demonstrate his immeasurable 
greatness. All right, we're back in that uncomfortable spot, aren't we? All right, 24. Even us, now he's going to be specific. Even us, whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. We talked about this idea of, uh, of calling that is like bringing a, a select group out of a larger group and making them kind of a special forces unit. Like, I'm going to make you, I, I, we've got a plan for you. I, I've got a purpose for you, and I'm going to take you, and you're going you're gonna to be for my glory, right? And he's saying, God chose, in previous times, many, many Jewish people. And that's clear throughout history. That was really clear. But now he's chosen not only many, many Jewish people, but many, many Gentile people. And that's his ability, his choice to be able to do that. Right? Then he goes on. He says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who were not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So now, you know, in the beginning part of chapter 9, he was referring to the kind of the early part of the Old Testament, the history part of the Old Testament. Now he's referring to a couple of prophets and what God was doing there and some statements he makes there. And, and the point of this, by the way, this, this is, is not really prophetic in the way that we think of prophecy, but this, what Paul is trying to prove is God has been this kind of God all along. God has always taken people who are not his people and made them his people, right? Even when you look at what happened with Abraham, Abraham wasn't his people. His descendants were not his people. He decided, you're going to be my people. His decision to make. This is when um, the northern kingdom, you know, the, the, the Israel gets split and there's like these ten tribes in the north. This northern kingdom, basically they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth and that's what he's talking about here. They're, they're done. But ho- not all hope is lost. Because you are not my people, Israel as a whole, you're not my people, you don't care about me, you don't want to follow me, but Israel will not be destroyed. Because even though you're not my people now, I will take some of you and make you my people. Because that's the way I work. That's the pattern that, that Yahweh has established, right? He goes on, it talks about Isaiah here. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had, Sabaoth just means uh, armies, like angel armies, had left us to posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. This is an interesting statement because this is about their, their uh, exile, right? Now we're talking about the southern kingdom, their exile, because they weren't the people of God. So now he's exiling them. But he says, um, unless the Lord of angel armies had left us to posterity, meaning had left us some small group of seeds of children, then we should have been and would have been completely destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah were. But instead, God worked in in a particular way. And that way is he took a remnant. 
he took a portion, not, not the whole group, he took a portion of Judah, and he saved them and protected them like he said he would, like his word had always promised them. In fact, what's amazing, I've always thought this is amazing, there was, um, there was a guy, I don't have the details on it, he was some king of Prussia uh, in like the 18th century, um, that he, he asked his advisor, he said, what is the greatest proof of the Christian God? And his advisor said, the Jewish people. And I actually agree with that. I think there is amazing proof of this because the Jews were this small ethnic group. If you think of all the people in all of history that were kind of these, these unique groups of people that had their own kind of ethnicity and their own culture and all that stuff, all of the groups that just simply do not exist anymore. And some of those were like major world powers that like the, 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 that group as a unique group doesn't even exist anymore. But you have this little people these Jews, these Israelites who have been conquered so many times, and somehow they have maintained their own ethnic identity, their own unique place in our world for thousands of years. And that speaks to God's promises and his fulfillment of those promises, right? And that's what he's talking about here. That God has always worked in taking from the larger group you think of the original choice of, of Abraham and the Israelites. For, he could have chosen anyone in the world, right? Any people group in the world. But he chose that people group, that smaller people group. And he did it here. Out of the, the larger group, he chose a smaller group, right? What Paul's trying to get at is God always has worked this way. It should not surprise us that not all Israel responded to Jesus as the Messiah in the first century. Because God has always worked with taking the smaller groups out of the larger group. Are we following his argument here? And for the Jews, for the Jewish Christians who are really upset, like Paul is, about the fact that not all Israel is being saved, this should be a corrective for them to go, oh yeah, okay, God has always kind of worked that way. And for us, when we see maybe those we love not following God and, we're, and we're, we're tempted to go, God, why? We should understand God has always worked this way. God has always worked this way. And our problem, and it's my problem too, that's what I'm saying our because it's mine too. Our problem is our perspective. We think we have more of a say than what we do. We think we can be disgruntled about that. And we're just wrong. Now, I'm just going to put the slide up. I'm not going to read over these again. But before I give the point, I just want to throw in here, you guys know we're only talking about God's free choice, independent choice in this passage, right? But also there's independent choice of each individual believer, right? Each individual person. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to go into the nuances of that. Both fully exist, right? I made that statement last week that God freely chooses those who freely choose him, right? Like both things exist. But I know we're heavy on this one side because that's what he's talking about. All right, here's the point. 
Throughout history, God has consistently chosen to save a few from the many and call them his people. Throughout history, God has consistently chosen to save a few from the many and call them his people. And if you're not happy with that, and I'm not very happy with it either, go back to point one, right? It's his choice. It's his decision. All right, conclusion. When we pass judgment on God's sovereign choices, it is fundamentally a problem of perspective, and we need a perspective adjustment. We think we exist for ourselves and for our own purposes, but we never have nor ever will. We exist at his pleasure, within his purposes, and for his glory. Once we get that we are entitled to nothing, then we will be freed to praise him in everything. Firmly believe that. The more I stop thinking, and I'm talking to myself, I'm speaking to myself here who thinks I'm entitled to quite a bit. The moment I start, stop thinking I'm entitled to anything is the moment that literally everything becomes a gift, right? Everything becomes a privilege from our loving God. Thank you, God, for making us who are in every way not your people, part of your people. Some questions that have been there throughout, I'll just go, go over them here. In what ways does your perspective toward the Creator need to change in light of our status as the created? And what does it mean to you to be one of the vessels of his mercy? And what does it mean to you to be part of his remnant? You pray for us. Lord, um, these truths are not easy. You know, I've uh, wrestled with um, the emotion of having to make these truths clear. Um, it would be much, much easier to pull punches. It would be much, much easier to theologize this and make it feel more comfortable and fit more into our sensibilities. Um, but God, you're just clear. You, you didn't do that. You just made it clear to us. And um, may we choose to conform our thinking to your thinking, even when it doesn't all add up for us, even when it doesn't all make sense to us, even when the ends don't meet. Help us to choose faith, to choose trusting you in your word and what it says, and letting that um, shape the way we respond to you. For this all in your name. Amen.